0: Hey fellow fraud fighters, a big welcome to the Seon Cat and Mouse Show, where we'll look to get into the mindset, thinking and learnings of the hardest working group of heroes we know, the fraud fighting professional. And on alternative shows, we'll dive into the opposite world of current or ex-fraudsters to get a real insight into what's driving them to do what they do. And ultimately, we'll be trying to best work out who's the real cat and mouse here. So today I'm really excited to speak to Tom Hughes around his story. Now, he has a very wide experience from being a banker, from being a CFO, from being an accountant. And I think he's kind of like had uh, a number of things happen where he's kind of strayed into being on the very wrong side um, and faced incarceration uh, twice. (laughs) So I'm really excited to kind of dive into, Tom, your story and to understand you know, what, what was it that kind of led to incarceration? How did you view financial crime? Um, and maybe some of the the kind of reasoning and thinking uh, going on in your mind, if that's okay. So welcome, Good Tom. Good morning, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tom, for for the audience, it's it's always great. And you run a website called hireafief.com. Uh, that's right. It'd be wonderful to to hear a couple of sentences of, you know, how you ended up incarcerated twice, um, what your background was?
1: I always found myself gravitating toward financial jobs, white collar jobs, I guess you'd call them. My father was a CPA and chief financial officer of the company he worked for. And I guess from the beginning, I figured I kind of inherited the ability to do financial work. My dirty little secret is that I don't think I was ever an especially good accountant, but I worked my way into positions of financial authority and trust and gained the trust of people around me typically thinking that I was going to do the work from the beginning and do it honestly. And it would be some combination of financial pressure or my own desire for some new toy that would lead me to think, well, I could work harder and stay here longer, or gee whiz, I know where the money is, uh, and I would just take it instead. I didn't have that strong moral compass for most of my life that would stand up and say, hey, don't do that.
0: Was it more opportunist? Was it kind of a slide into crime? Do you remember your kind of earliest kind of experience uh, kind of going down this route?
1: My earliest experience was not typical of the crimes I committed. I found an unattended bag of money when I was a bank teller in 1981 (laughs) and simply took it home. It it sounds awfully simple to say that. I probably couldn't pull that off today. It was a matter of six weeks or so before the crime was discovered. And by then, of course, the money was gone. And I talked my way out of further investigation when the bank's internal auditors um, questioned me about it. I also learned very on that an investigator can talk a suspect or a target out of confessing Hmm. when it becomes clear that he doesn't know what he claims to know about the crime. I, I use that story quite often when I talk to investigators about not showing their hand or telling a criminal how they think he committed a crime. But I moved on from there. Uh, I went to college and dropped out less than two years later and found myself, as I said, in other financial jobs. I never intentionally sought a an employer or a client out to steal their money. But you mentioned the word sliding into criminal behavior. And I guess you could say at some positions, the slide took longer than others. What, what did that look like, Tom?
0: Um, what types of fraud, theft were you involved in?
1: I, I should say up front, in, hand in hand with not being an especially good accountant, I am certainly no criminal mastermind. <laughs> I never set up a complex or sophisticated fraud. Virtually everything I did was a sometimes clumsy crime of opportunity. I saw the money, I saw a weakness and simply took it. You know, The most sophisticated I got at covering a crime might've been uh, changing the address on a vendor in QuickBooks and mailing a check to me or coming up with a, a small misspelling of a vendor so that when a client saw a check in his statement, it would look like it was made out to one of his creditors. What you'll find in most small-scale frauds is that they are not sophisticated. They are not well-planned. It's simply a matter of a bookkeeper or accountant who has a position of trust will take the money. Most now, accountants train for large-scale frauds. They learn about public companies and financial statement fraud, but most accounting firms, most law enforcement activity is directed toward small-scale crimes like mine that are probably the bulk of the damage done to small businesses. In my state especially, there are a small handful of public companies in the state I live in, but there are lots and lots of small businesses who depend on an internal bookkeeper or accountant and place a great deal of trust in them. What would you consider were the worst things you were involved in? When it comes to the the actual damage done to my clients, financially, the, the worst thing I could do to them was to take money from them on the pretext that I was advancing money to pay taxes or take money from them on the pretext that I had already advanced their taxes Hmm. and just seeking reimbursement. Of course, the punchline for that is that I never actually made the tax payments. It astonishes me even today that I never had a client say no when I said, I'm going to pay your taxes, give me the money. Uh, I never had them ask for a receipt. I never had them question it. Hmm. But you can imagine whether it's the IRS or Her Majesty's Re- Revenue and Customs, uh, if you go to them and say, gee, I'd love to pay my taxes, but I gave my tax money to my accountant, they really don't care. So <laughs> the damage I did to my clients by doing that was quite severe because it left them out the money and in tax trouble. Uh, that's about the, the worst thing I could have done. As you can imagine, in a small business that trusts their accountant, you socialize together, you have dinner together, you get to know each other's families. When you discover that someone that close to you has done something like that to you, it makes you question your decision-making. It makes you question your relationships. And it's a deeper hurt than if someone whacked you over the head and stole your wallet in the street because it was someone you willingly gave access to. And that's, that's difficult to accept on the part of the victim.
0: What kind of rationalizations did you perhaps come up with?
1: Jimmy, I have a difficult relationship with the word rationalization. I genuinely believe that a thief is going to steal money no matter what. And the rationalization comes afterward. It, to one degree or another, everyone thinks themselves ill-used. Everyone thinks themselves underpaid. Everyone thinks themselves more important than they, than they really are in an organization, at least to some degree. But if, if it was the case that people who are underpaid will steal money because of it, then there wouldn't be five pence left in any cash register in any retail store in the UK. <laughs> because every retail employee thinks themselves underpaid and ill-used. I don't think rationalization comes first. I think the desire for the money, the desire for gain comes first. And then later on, you might think, well, gee, they weren't treating me especially well. I knew from the very beginning, any dollar I took didn't belong to me. I knew it wasn't a loan. I knew it wasn't an advance on some money to come later. I knew very clearly that the money I was taking did not belong to me.
0: And let's let's fast forward to incarceration. So I think you told me that the FBI came knocking on your door. What what was that like, Tom, uh, when that happened?
1: FBI agents don't blend in well. When they show up in your driveway, it's pretty obvious who they are. They were quite nice, quite cordial, uh, very professional, very businesslike. They showed up at my door, held up the ID, and they said, do you know who we are? I said, yes. They said, do you know why we're here? I said, yes. They said, did you do it? I said, Yes. (laughs) And in the further course of questioning, they said, this is a more difficult question for you, I'm sure. But in cases like yours, it doesn't only happen to one client. Did you do this to anyone else? And I said, yes. And it was a matter of profound relief that I was able to honestly say, yes, I did this. In one sense, you could look at that as the end of something. And on the other side, it was the beginning of something. It was the end of having to hide so much from so many people for so long and work my way back toward a decent, honest life. But at the time, it was, it was hard to go through. On a regular basis at that time, I remember thinking what a relief it was to, to be on going in the right direction. And interestingly enough, I did not catch a prison sentence for what I did. At my sentencing, I was sentenced to five years of supervised release or probation, a few hundred hours of community service, and they said I was locked in my house for six months. I walked out of the courtroom thinking I got away with the crime because there was no jail time involved. Within six months, I found another client, ran into some financial emergency, and stole their money. I went to prison for failing probation, for not taking my sentence or my crime seriously. So even though, as I just said, I was on the right road, uh, it was still a very difficult behavior to break. So I en- I did end up in federal prison in Massachusetts, and that was the beginning of truly letting it all go, letting my past go. Because at that point, once I was in prison, I couldn't hide anything. I couldn't call a client and make an excuse for a missed payment. Any mail I sent to anyone was stamped with the address of the prison. I couldn't hide anything anymore. It's as though all the plates I had kept spinning on the outside were coming crashing down and I could do nothing about it. So while I was in federal prison, I wrote to yet another client and said, You don't know this yet, but I stole your money too, and I will ask you not to call any authorities until after I'm out of federal prison, and then we can make arrangements for me to pay you back. I'm still surprised that they agreed to, in a sense, uh, keep it a secret until after I was out of prison. The reason I asked them to do that was that I was in a minimum security, or actually no security, federal camp. And if there was a pending charge on the outside, they would have moved me, moved me into a real prison. So after I was out, having made that promise, I dragged my feet on paying them back. So they did indeed call the police. And I had a second experience this time with local law enforcement and a state court and a state prison. In this case, because it was a state crime, the state of Vermont has a program where victims of crime can seek reimbursement from the state without having to chase the person who stole from them or damaged them in some way. So the state paid my client off, made them whole financially, and my obligation was to pay the state back, which I'm quite grateful for. Had I known that would be the case, I probably would have turned myself in earlier knowing they would get reimbursement. And the experience in state prison was quite different from federal prison. In my unit in federal prison, I was among the youngest at 42, least educated men there. I was surrounded by people with incredible resumes, a great deal of accomplishment, some degree of wealth, accountants, attorneys, insurance brokers, investment bankers. Um, I had one guy in my unit who was a doctor and a lawyer. And I learned a lot just from the people I was around, not so much for criminal activity, but I learned a lot about business and finance just in the the course of conversation. When I got to state prison, I was teaching 17 and 18-year-old kids to read. It was a very different environment. I learned so much more about the pressing need for mental health services, for a solid education in a state prison that I had just taken for granted before that.
0: Emotionally, Tom, what was it like on that first night in state prison?
1: My first night in federal prison is probably the night that changed my life because I was, for the first time in my life, absolutely alone. I had no belongings. I had the prison uniform they issued me when I checked in. I couldn't reach on my hip, pick up my phone, and call someone. I was absolutely alone. And it was it was that night that, well, I began to pray because isn't that so much like us? We begin to pray when we absolutely positively cannot do anything else. Then we think, gee, maybe we should pray. And within a matter of moments, I realized I was called to ministry, that outside of the obvious reason I had ended up in prison, there was a second, perhaps more important reason that I was there, that it was a, a mission field that needed to be explored. Because people there were alone, away from their families, in a place where they had absolutely no control over their lives. And it was a time to really consider where lives were going and what their purpose was. My first three nights in prison, I was in segregated housing or solitary confinement, just to be sure I didn't have any horrible communicable diseases. And once it was determined I was healthy, I was moved into my unit. And I genuinely looked forward to, if not starting a ministry, even though I eventually did, but sharing the truth, sharing the gospel with the people around me. And that's what made my time in federal prison probably more productive than much of my time before prison. So with
0: fraud now, and clearly technologies moved it along as well. I'm interested to your view, if you think with mindset for a criminal fraudster, if technologies played a part, if it's made it more opportunistic, what's,
1: what's your view on that, Tom? The technology certainly makes things easier, doesn't it? I can reach out and steal from someone in South Africa or Argentina or across the street with about the same amount of effort, I should say, if I'm that kind of criminal. Using technology was never my thing so much as using my personal relationships and my ease around people was my thing. But technology will make things easier, both with the distance involved, where you can reach out and steal from anywhere, and the number of people you can steal from all at once. But the criminal mindset never changes. It hasn't changed in thousands of years of human history. When we think of King Solomon, the wisest man in history, he wrote in the book of Proverbs at least three times that we need to be honest in the course of business, usually in the, in the context of making sure we use honest weights and measures in our dealings. What you won't see in the book of Proverbs is Solomon telling us, you need to engage a qualified expert metallurgist who will attest that your 10 shekel weight really weighs 10 shekels. He didn't say that because he didn't care about the technology 3,000 years ago either. All he cared about was he knew that the darkness of the human heart would lead people to cheat and steal. So that mindset hasn't changed, will not change. There will always be people among us who seek to steal what we have. Our option is pretty much limited to reducing their opportunity to do so because we won't change their rationalization, we won't change the darkness in their heart, we won't change human greed, but we can do our best to put controls in place to limit their opportunity to to steal.
0: When you were looking at targets, what kind of things would, uh, would you look for ideally?
1: My ideal target would be a client who was so thrilled to be in business for himself, doing what he loved, whether it was machining parts or grooming dogs or brewing beer or whatever it was, that he was so delighted to be doing his job that he didn't care what was going on in his office, that he, he knew he didn't get involved in business because he was eager to deal with the IRS on a regular basis. He wanted to do what he did and leave the administration and finance to someone else. And then here I would come, all smiles, and say, I'm an accountant tedious is my comfort zone. I'm happy to take this off your hands. And if I had a client who was not paying attention, it was going to cost him. Often it was going to cost him dearly. Because if he wasn't checking his bank statements, if he wasn't in regular contact with his vendors, with his creditors, with his bank, if he wasn't paying attention, I certainly was. I had one client who would go to the post office in the morning, pick up the mail, come back to his shop and drop it on my desk unopened. I've often said that if he had sat in his truck at the post office and sliced open the mail with his pocket knife and not even read it, just given it to me open, he probably would have saved himself ten or $20,000 because I might have thought he was keeping an eye on on what was his, but he wasn't. So I could tell with any client within four to six weeks who was paying attention and who was not.
0: So this podcast is uh, listened to from uh, the fraud fighting professional. Do you have any advice for people that, you know, their livelihood is to combat fraud?
1: For anyone engaged in, in this line of work, and I, I understand that everyone has their, their own specialization, and this may not be possible for everyone, but in general, 80 to 90% of fraud fighting comes with prevention. When it comes to investigation, to nailing down who did what, to finding an offender, to seeking reimbursement, all of that activity takes place after your money is gone. I, I believe that that 80 to 90 percent of your time should be spent in prevention, in developing solid internal controls, in imagining how you could be stolen from, and then addressing those weaknesses. It's maybe a shame that there are no dramatic 10 p.m. television dramas about the accountants who fight fraud by preventing it, where crimes never happen. I doubt you could sell that story, but the fact is that's where the money is. You know, money that's never stolen never has to be recovered. So it's, to me, it's all about prevention.
0: Yeah, I also like um, that with your particular uh, past, it was around trust as well. And it's the element of they trust you. So therefore,
1: that's, that's the implicit uh, kind of uh, issue there. It, absolutely. Because you, you have to trust the people that work for you. If you don't trust them, then you're going to sit next to them and watch them do their work all the time in which case you may as well fire them and do the work yourself. You have to trust the people that work for you, otherwise no work will get done. And that's why you need controls in place to be sure that you know duties are separated or you know criminal activity would be discovered if not prevented. After all, I can't steal from you until you trust me. You have to allow people to do their work, but they also have to understand that their work may be monitored, that their work won't be a secret.
0: And the title of the podcast, uh, Tom, is cat and mouse, fraud fighting professional versus you, the ex-fraudster. Who do you consider the cat and the mouse?
1: I think that may change from day to day. I think in in different circumstances, perhaps a fraudster who knows someone is onto him may rearrange things thinking he's the cat, um, thinking that he's playing with or toying with an investigator. On the other hand, I think that's probably quite rare. I think overwhelmingly the fraudsters are the mice. We are continually scrambling to cover our tracks or evade detection. We may think we're in charge, but uh, most of our time, we're just scared.
0: Tom, that's been a a very insightful talk there. Thank you again for uh, coming on and sharing you know, little bits of your story. And for, for those who are interested,
1: what's the best way to reach you? The best way to find me is, at, you mentioned my web address, uh, it's hireathief.com or you could you could email me at uh, tom at I should say I, I don't assist in investigations because what I found is that former criminals make terrible investigators. <laughs> uh, we're always on the lookout only for the crime that we committed and we don't have an open mind for for other activities. But I am happy to speak to groups of auditors or accountants, law enforcement, students, anyone who wants to hear more about this. Tom, thank you again. Jimmy, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's show. At Sayon, our whole startup is 100% focused on helping you, the hardworking fraud manager, fight fraud with tools that are intuitive and fully complement your existing risk tech stack. Check out our website where you can get started on a free trial
1: and be up and running in 30 seconds or less.